Welcome back to the Mason Jar on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and since this is the Mason Jar, that means that I'm here with Cindy Rollins. Cindy, how's it going? It's going very well. Well, today uh, on the Mason Jar is an interview episode. It's our monthly interview episode, and we have Mary Jo Tate, who is a friend of both of ours. And we've how long have you known Mary Jo? Well, I've known her online a long time. I've kind of followed her around, but I have, I've never met her in person. Oh, no, I have met her in person. Duh. <laughs> I met her in person at a friend of mine's house a couple years ago and really, really started to appreciate her even more after I met her in person. Yeah, yeah. I think I met her at a uh, probably one of the homeschool conventions a couple of years ago. Um, I think she may have interviewed, interviewed my dad about about uh, great books somewhere along the way. Oh yes, I remember seeing that interview. Yeah. That, that's right, kind of a stand up at the curriculum fair yeah. interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So Mary Jo is a great person to talk about uh, books with, and that's kind of what you did for this interview. Quickly, I'll just go over some of her her bona fides, some of her bio. She has four sons, ranging from sixteen to twenty five. Three of them are in college, and she has been homeschooling for twenty one years which is quite an accomplishment. It takes some stick to to do that, as you know. Yes. Uh, she also has an, you know, kind of a unique perspective on that because she's been a single mom for 16 years. So you, you can imagine that the different, you know, the different stresses and strains that come with that um, and the perspective that that kind of lends to, to you know, other homeschooling moms. Um, she has had a, a home biz as an editor and book coach for over 30 years. And she's the author of Flourish, Balance for Homeschool Moms. Her website is flourishathome.com. So flourish, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H, athome.com. And she has a blog for book lovers at eclecticbibliophile.com. And there's a rumor from her <laughs> that she's working on an ebook about books. So if you want to sign up on her blog, you can be the first to know about that. But let's talk a little bit about your conversation with her. What are some of the things that stood out? Yeah, I, I think we had the most fun talking about the books for moms and how how like mother culture, how moms can can read on their own. And and Mary Jo is just a great person to talk to about books because she just goes, she just knows everything about <laughs> the <books>. enthusiasm, right? <laughs> yes, and, and she's she and she recently she, right now on her Facebook page, she's actually been with Jan Karen oh. <laughs> um, at a wow. at an event this week. So we talk about Jan Karen because she's quite the. Um, the fan of Jan Karen and, and um, yeah, the two of you could start a mutual admiration club for her, for Jan Karen, right? That's right. It would be, it, so it was, it was fun to um, talk to her just about some adult things, not just what we do with our kids, but what we do for ourselves. What, which volume is the ourselves um, in the, in Charlotte Mason? Uh, which volume is ourselves? That's a good question. It's, it may be four. Let me, that's my off the top of the head guess. It's that's what, that was what I was thinking, but I didn't. It is four. It is four. I am, I'm the winner. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember off the top of my head if the name Charlotte Mason is mentioned during this interview, but it's the kind of episode that speaks to that volume. The idea that, you know, to be successful at education um, and just to be, you know, a more human human being, you have to take care of ourselves, right? We have to take care of our own intellects, our own souls. And that's, that's right. That's where an interview like this is, is so helpful. And, I, and that's one of the things that, you know, stood out from the interview for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm okay with us not mentioning Charlotte Mason every time, um, because Charlotte, that's what she was about. Um, she was about all of us being learners. And, and I, th I think we actually do talk about this, but Charlotte Mason had a mother's education society where, where it was for mothers to learn, not just the children. So anything we do to, to learn on our own and, and to read and to think, um, and, and I know Mary Jo is a huge fan of the Close Reads podcast also. So <laughs> along with that whole, you know, making yourself a better person. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think she did say some nice things about the show. So, yeah, I'm going to recommend you listen to that part of it, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess with that, let's go ahead and kick it over to the interview that you did with Mary Jo Tate. I think everyone's going to really enjoy this. And we will, uh, we will talk to everyone next time on The Mason Jar. Thanks for listening. I am uh, super duper excited that super duper is my new word that I picked up from my granddaughter. Uh, super duper excited to have Mary Jo Tate with us today on the Mason Jar. Mary Jo um, is uh, somebody I've known on the internet for a long time and then a couple years ago I got to meet her in real life. She is the author of Flourish, 
Balance for Homeschool Moms. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, she, she has homeschooled four, four sons uh, since 1997. And one of the neat things about uh, Mary Jo is that uh, she's been a single mom, and yet she's, she is, um, through the Lord's help, I'm sure, been able to homeschool her boys. And I think that's fantastic. She has also written several other books. And if you check out her website, uh, you can, she has two websites that you can um, check out. She has flourishathome.com and eclecticbibliophile.com. And right now she is teaching seventh uh, and eighth grades at the Franklin Classical School. Now, the really cool thing about Mary Jo is that she is a bibliophile and she knows a lot about reading. She knows a lot about teaching literature and she just knows a lot about books in general. Um, she has that disease, and we always like to talk to someone um, that has that disease. So, um, t so today we off uh, we um, we welcome Mary Jo. Hello, Mary Jo. <laughs> hey, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, we're very very excited about it. Um, um, so I thought what would be fun for us to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about teaching literature uh, later, and we'll talk about you know how we choose books for kids. And the the big question we always get is what is a living book, and, and we'll try to cover that. But I thought it would be fun if we talk for a few minutes about uh, reading from the perspective of mom. Um, what are are just our own reading? I guess I, I'll steal a page from Close Reads, and we'll just um, talk about the things we're reading and the things um, that we can recommend other people to read. So, um, so let's let's just start there. What are what are you reading right now? Uh, well, how long is your show, Cindy? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I just I've got to preface that by saying books are my life. I read books, I write books, I make my primary li living by editing books, I teach about books, I blog about books, and I love to have conversations about books. So this is like my sweet spot. When people say, what, what would you do if you could do anything? Well, why would I change this? My whole life is books. You know, yes. I've the perfect life. Oh, so, wow. I've got a stack to, to prepare for the show. I went around the house and collected all of the books that I'm currently reading. And I think I had to collect them for like six or seven different places because I keep one on the <laughs> uh, table next to the recliner and one on the kitchen table and one or two on my nightstand and one in my office and one in the crate that I take to school and, you know, maybe two or three other places. And so I've got quite a, an eclectic collection here and I, I've always got more than one book going. Right. I usually have at least one nonfiction book and one or more fiction books going. Um, usually it's a big old stack of print books, but I use audiobooks and occasionally Kindles as well. So just what I am currently in the process of reading, I am reading rereading The Hobbit because that's what I'm teaching my seventh and eighth graders. And it's fun to uh, be rereading that from the perspective of uh, a teacher and just sharing the joy of a great story to kick off the school year. And when we talk about how to teach literature, we can talk about that a little more because it's just so fun to share that excitement of a great book with kids who are soaking it up. Mm. I am just about to start rereading Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I'm a little behind on the Close Reads podcast, um, but I've got that out to start next. Yeah, I just finished that a few months ago. I didn't know Goodreads was going to do it, but that yeah. makes me feel restful. I don't have to rush through it to, to get to be right. a part. <laughs> right. And I am partway through Sally Clarkson and Nathan Clarkson's book, Different, the story of an outside-the-box kid and the mom who loved him, which is really encouraging uh, in our parenting when it's difficult. Oh, that's I great. am about to begin reading Karen Glass's book, Consider This, Charlotte Mason and the Classical Tradition, which is a perfect fit for me in several ways because I started out in my early homeschooling years mostly uh, in Charlotte Mason style, and then later on we joined a classical co-op, and I'm teaching at a classical school now, but I'm able to implement uh, some of the more 
Charlotte Mason uh, styles, and I'm also about to embark on a major editing project that I can't identify yet that is going to sort of blend Charlotte Mason and classical. So I'm reading this both for pleasure, personal development, and professional development. Well, that is one of our favorite books on the podcast here. So yes, (laughs) yes, I knew I knew that would be a good fit. Yeah, I have got an advanced reading copy of Trisha Goyer's new book, "Walk It Out: The Radical Result of Living God's Word One Step at a Time," Mm. that I'm just getting started reading. Just about how God has worked in her life and the results of obeying him through all the different circumstances. And though she and I have had different paths, it resonates with me and my walk as a single mom, which is something I never expected to be. And just seeing how uh, God has worked in my own life through uh, circumstances that I could not have imagined. So I'm enjoying reading that. Yeah, I recently... Uh, finished Brideshead Revisited for the Close Reads podcast, and that was uh, quite a beautiful read. And I also recently finished reading Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking Mm. by Susan Cain. And this is one of the most powerful books I have read in a long time. I um, have two sons who are very introverted, two who are exceedingly extroverted and you don't have any of those middle people in your family either that's how our family is we just have all the extremes (laughs) well i'm the middle person i used to identify completely as an extrovert and as i've gotten older um i have started testing out almost 50 50 e and i on those personality tests And this book helped me understand myself a little better, as well as my introverted sons, and to see the strengths that they have and also the challenges that they face in a world that sometimes interprets introversion as a flaw rather than a strength. So that has been... um, That has been a really good read. And then the other two things I'm reading, that's my stack of print books, I always have, almost always have one of Jan Karen's Mitford books going on Audible, and I usually reread the reread or re-listen to the entire series at least every couple of years. I'm currently on Come Rain or Come Shine oh, I love on that. Audible, and I just recently was able to obtain the pre-pub galleys of her new book, To Be Where You Are. And I'm reading that on the Kindle app on my phone. I never thought I'd see the day when I'd be reading on my phone, um, but I have it with me all the time. Sure. So, so that's what, and it's the galleys are available only digitally. So, not going to give any spoilers. I will be writing a review, but it is just as beautiful, and heartwarming, and heartbreaking, and powerful as you would expect. Oh boy. Yeah. My husband just read that whole series because it came out on audible. I had read it over the years as they came out and then he got them all on audible. And then I read the last two finally, but, um, you mentioned the other day and I have not read her books that were not in Midford until I'm just getting back to those now. But which book did you say was your favorite of the Midford books? The other day, I think you said on Facebook. uh, Yes, I did mention that. (laughs) I've got to preface it by saying if anybody really pointed a gun to my head and said, which is your favorite Mitford book? I hope that never happens, but okay. it would be <laughs> Today. My favorite Mitford book is, is usually whichever one I'm currently reading. Right. But in the gun-pointed-at-the-head scenario, I would have to choose Home from Holly Springs. Okay. She wrote nine books set in Mitford, and then she began what she called the Father Tim series, and Home to Holly Springs is the first, and In the Company of Others set in Ireland is the second one. And I love Home to Holly Springs with the passion beyond all reason. I think it is where she grew the most as a writer. She, she grew as a writer steadily over all the Mitford books, but Home to Holly Springs was something else altogether. Mm. And it's beautiful for Mitford lovers because it shows us the forces that shaped Father Tim 
into the person that he is. It reveals a lot about his struggles with his father and what, what made his father that way. It has some exciting new plot twists that I will not spoil. Okay. <laughs> but also in terms of just her artistry as a writer and how the story is told, it weaves back and forth between the present time where Father Tim is going back to where he was born in Holly Springs and revisiting his past, and then his memories from his childhood. And with the uh, elements of studying racial issues, being set in Mississippi and that seamless interweaving of present and past, it kept feeling like I was reading Faulkner, except without the big words and the long sentences. That's what you said, and that really intrigued me because I had skipped mm-hmm. those two books, and and now, and I I did notice when I came back to Jan Karen's, uh, some some play, What's the one about somewhere safe with someone something more? Somewhere safe with somebody good. Yes, I that you really could see her talent, and that I felt like in that book, um, a lot of that really blossomed there. Also, yes. yes. Um, but anyway, um, so. So Holly Springs is your is somewhat your favorite. Well, it's my, like I said, and I love Shepherd's Abiding, the Christmas. Oh yes, book. I do love I just, that. I love all of them so much. But if you forced me to choose, Holly Springs would have to be it. And you know, it it's uh, a little bit sad to me that the two Father Tim books, Home to Holly Springs and In the Company of Others, set in Ireland, are her fans' least favorite books. Because I think sometimes we just want to read the same familiar place over and over. Mitford is wonderful, and we love to revisit it. And I want to live in Mitford in my mind, you know. Right. But she grew so much as a writer, and she challenged her readers more. In the Ireland book, there's excerpts from a centuries-old diary, and a lot of people complain about that and find it hard to read. I don't think it's hard to read. It's just a different type of reading. And it's not what we were expecting, but she she delves so deep into to social issues and into the way people interact with one another. Um, and I think there's so much more going on there than a lot of times she has given credit for. Right. Uh, a lot of times Mitford is uh, criticized as being too sweet and you know too sort of sticky sweet and shallow. And I'm like. Are these people reading the same books I'm reading? Because there's a lot of pain and ugliness going on that people are having to deal with right. in these books. Right. Yes. So. And she, but she does, in a way, that's a beautiful thing because in, in modern literature, we tend to say, oh, look, pain and ugliness and, and without any redemption, without any beauty yes. in the background. But she has it both together. That's one of the things I really like about To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. Um, they In that book, I feel like she captures this terrible thing about racism at the same time without rejecting the culture completely and just throwing yes. out the baby with the bathwater. And, and, and there is, there's bad things and there's good things, and they live together in the book. And, um, and then I think that's how Midford is too. But, you know, yes. of course we love those. We, we love that good feeling we get when we're reading them. So maybe they get a bad rap that way, but, um, no. I'm certain, I'm certain that I, I'm sure that I, I was hesitant to keep reading the series after she stopped and then she started back. And I'm not really sure why I, I think I was afraid, uh, maybe I was mm-hmm. afraid it was too formulaic. But when I finally gave the the new books a chance, and not and I haven't given the other two a chance yet, but I will now. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that she has grown as a person, and the books oh. had grown, yes. and um, there there wasn't anything formulaic about it at all. Yeah, not at all. And just two two more quick thoughts about Mitford. One of the things that I think best describes her books is something she said about her reason for writing. She has said that she writes to give readers an extended family and to applaud the extraordinary beauty of ordinary lives. Mm -hmm. And that idea of the beauty in ordinary lives is something that really just speaks to my soul. And um, I can't think what the other thing was that I was going. There's just so much to share. But, But they are heartwarming. Oh, I know what the other thing was. The, the way that the character's faith is woven so naturally 
into the fabric of their daily lives. Mm -hmm. It's not paced on Sunday school morals. It's perfectly believable when Father Tim and Cynthia or other characters are talking and they just suddenly stop and, and pray. And it's not pasted on. It's authentic. You totally believe that this is what these people would do. And it's such an inspiration to me as a believer and a, a person just struggling along an ordinary life, a reminder to go to God in prayer in just the everyday moments. Oh, yes. Yes. Just the walking with your faith all day long. And it's very, very well. I mean, it, honestly, it's and my husband said this, it, it, it it's kind of like a nice primer for life. How, how as Christians should we walk through our life? And, and if you don't have those skills, if you weren't handed them by your family or you have brokenness, um, it can kind of be a little manual, uh, for, oh, this is how a Christian walks through life. And this is without being preachy at all, without being, you know, moralistic in any way. So, um, so yeah, so we have a big shout out then to the Midford books and Jan Karen Yay. and I, I'm glad to get a chance to talk to you about it because you are really, you're kind of a fan fan of, of Midford. Like you'd like do like tours and stuff. Don't you like, um, yes, I, I have been to quite a few of the Midford homecoming events and I actually did have the amazing privilege of going to Ireland with a group of Jan's readers and Jan and her daughter. Oh my. And we stayed in the little Irish lodge where she got the inspiration for in the company of others and went around to some of the different sites that are in the book. And it was just an amazing opportunity to get to know her in person a little better and also just to to see that that other world that she took us to outside of Midford. Well, and in so, the, um, and the other town is considered to be Blowing Rock. Midford is considered Blowing Rock is a, is where uh, is that correct? Because the Cersei well, Summer Institute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, in in uh, Blowing Rock at the Chitola. Yes, Blowing Rock is my happy place. Blowing Rock is where Jan lived when she began writing the book. She hung up a career uh, in advertising and marketing and moved to Blowing Rock to write the novels uh, that God was putting on her heart. And many people equate Blowing Rock with Mitford, and I'm perfectly fine with that. You can certainly see um, the inspirations for different parts of Mitford. For example, the Moses Cone Manor on the Blue Ridge Parkway is Mm -hmm. a model for Sadie Baxter's Fern Bank and so on. Uh, but Jan also likes to say that anywhere can be Mitford. Yes. When, when you have uh, a community of, of faith and friendship and family where people care about one another, that's Mitford. And it can be in a big city or a small town. It can be on the coast or in the mountains or anywhere. And another one of the things that I think shows the power of her books is the community that has grown up both online and in person which is how I have been to these events. Jan's uh, readers don't even like to call themselves fans per se, but just there there's, have been online groups and people have gotten to know one another and they've even moved past talking about the books. They're involved in one another's lives as friends now. I have a couple of very dear friends that I just visited in Washington State that the first place I ever met them in person was in Dublin <laughs> on wow. that trip. And we yeah. know each other because of the Mitford books. Right. So... Um, just now, the way they bring people together. If you have finished all the Mitford books and you're looking for something else to read that has a, a, maybe not the same because that's not really possible, but what other books um, do you think would be we could would be recommended for, for someone who likes the Mitford books? Well, there is really, as you said, nothing that compares. Um, sometimes... Uh, I recommend the books by Miss Reed. Yes, yes. R-E-A-D, the Fairacre series and the Thrush Green series. And in fact, Jan Karen gave a blurb to the Fairacre books. I don't have it in front of me, but it's something along the lines, if you enjoyed a visit to Mitford, you'll relish a visit to Fairacre. Okay. And they are set in small town uh, in the English countryside in a little village uh, from the perspective of the local school teacher. They are very slow books in terms of plot, but there's a tremendous amount of richness in the, in the setting 
and in the characters and in just that small town, or in that case, village life of people interacting with one another uh, in their ordinary lives. And so they are quite beautiful books as well. Mm. Yeah, I like those. And they're not always easy to find, though, either. Um, some libraries have them, and they're they're a little more rare than, than they maybe were. Maybe, maybe they've been reprinted. I'm not sure, but... Well, they were reprinted, and I think even the reprints have gone out of print, but it's still, you can find online. I think some of them are still available on major online booksellers, hard to find them in stores. There are out-of-print copies available. Um, Good reason they're, to they're get the used bookstores, out. too. Yes, I, yeah, I, I had quite a few that I picked up along the way just because I keep my eye out for right. them. At, at the and let me just put in a put in a plug for interlibrary loan. Okay. Uh, for years, I have, even if your local library doesn't have something, they probably have interlibrary loan. And the interlibrary loan staff at whatever local library where I've lived has always known me well because you don't have to be limited by what's on the shelf there. They can almost always get it for you uh, from somewhere else. So if you can't afford to buy the books online or at second, can't find them at secondhand shops or whatever, Interlibrary Loan is a wonderful way to expand what you can have access to. Now, we just found out our library is very generous. If you go to our library and make a request for them to buy a book, they often are able to do that. They have a budget. And yes. um, um, so, I mean, that's a, just a helpful tip about any book that you yes. might want to reread or, you know, maybe four or five of your friends want to read it. Right. Um, the library can also buy those books. So, yes, um, we could pr probably talk about that a little bit, too. Um any other any other books that you could think of in that in that genre or or what what other books what kind of fiction books do you enjoy reading besides classics? Well, uh, I confess to enjoying John Grisham when okay. I want just a high paced, high interest, good old fashioned story. He is not a brilliant writer in the sense of literary style, but man, he can tell a story. Right. And so I enjoy those. I love reading Agatha Christie. Um, I spent about a year and a half reading all of the Miss Marple novels and all of the Hercule Poirot novels and then the other odds and ends, Tommy and Tuppence and uh, Harley Quinn and a few other odds, odds and ends. So I enjoy uh, mysteries for light reading, but here's, and I've been starting to read uh, Dorothy Sayers also thanks to the Close Read podcast, but my challenge is that with a mystery, I can't put it down. Yes. Yeah. Even, even if it's one that I've read before, because one of the good things of an aging mind and fading memory is if you you can't always remember who done it. No. So it's just, just the second I know. time around. I've read a couple over again recently and I thought I have no idea who did this. <laughs> and yeah. I, don't know yeah. why. I, yeah. I can remember scenes from the book, but I still don't know yeah. who done it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think well, mysteries are great for people who are in a slump. You know, some people aren't natural readers and they, they want to be. And I always say, hey, pick up a murder mystery because mm -hmm. you won't be able to put it down and it'll get in a good habit of reading but you know even within the field of murder mysteries there are well-written ones and poorly written yes, ones yes yes agatha christie is my favorite i'm just embarking on dorothy sayers there's also i'm not sure how to pronounce her name neo marsh is oh yeah yes and marjorie allingham they're all beautifully written they were i think called the queens of crime but every now and then I have picked up just a random mystery off the secondhand bookstore shelf. And recently when I was coming off a long, grueling editing project where I had been working nine to 12 hours a day for four weeks straight, and I just wanted something so light it would float up off the page. And it turns out there are things that are even lighter than that. And I read a <laughs> couple of recent mysteries, one even that had won uh, an award. And I was like, seriously? They were yeah. so shallow and yes. so badly written and just so lame. It was horrifying. It was like twaddle for grownups. Yes, yes. So. And so it is, you can't just pick up anything. Um, that, that is a very good point. Um, and there are millions of series of, of murder mysteries now. It's very popular uh, genre. And, and if you're not careful, you will get into a lot of junk. Yeah, um, and not just junk, but some of them, of course, have highly 
inappropriate content. One of one of the great sorrows for me in recent years is I love reading books about books yeah. and books about bookstores and booksellers. And so I'll often just pick up a book based on that connection and there will be just wildly inappropriate content. Right. Which keeps me from enjoying the book, keeps me from recommending it. But if they had taken out just those few scenes, it would have still been a wonderful story, a better story without all the junk in it. And it, it just breaks my heart to see how much ugliness and immorality there is in current and recent fiction. It's uh, another reason to love uh, Mitford so much. It's another reason to love the classics so much. And and before I lose the opportunity and the thought, when we were talking about other books that I recommend, this is more of a classic than just the sort of gentle fiction genre. But I love Eudora Welty. Oh, okay. Her uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Optimist's Daughter, is just beautifully written. And her book, One Writer's Beginnings, it's based on some autobiographical lectures she gave at Harvard. It is one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. I read that at your, I haven't read her fiction yet, but I read that at your, when I, when I saw that you mentioned it and mm -hmm. it, and some of my Cersei talk from the oh. summer, um, I didn't directly, um, access her, or, you know, quote her, but, um, a lot of the thoughts that I had, um, were centered around my reading of that book and, and the idea yes. of remembrance and, oh. and, um, very, very good book. You were right about that. <laughs> I, I love that book with a fierce passion and a friend recently, uh, was, was quoting something and she said, let's see who, it was one of the Southern women writers. It wasn't Flannery O'Connor. It was the other one. And I said, with all the score and I could muster, the other one? <laughs> Do you mean Eudora Welty? And this was in a public venue, by the way. Right. <laughs> and right. so I ended up giving her a copy of One Writer's Beginnings, both the print book and the the audio version for her birthday so that she could enjoy it. I happen to have one of my favorite quotes from one writer's beginnings handy. And it's just such a beautiful description of the love of books. She talks about when she was very young, it had been startling and disappointing to me to find out that storybooks had been written by people, that books were not natural wonders coming up of themselves like grass Yet regardless of where they came from, I cannot remember a time when I was not in love with them, with the books themselves, cover and binding, and the paper they were printed on, with their smell and their weight, and with their possession in my arms, captured and carried off to myself. Still illiterate, I was ready for them, committed to all the reading I could give them. And that just so beautifully expresses the passion that we readers have for the books that we love and just for books in general, there's something that captures us. Oh yes. That's yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I had that underlined also in, in my book. Um, that was a beautiful quote from that book. Um, oh, there was something else I wanted to ask you about that. And I, my, now I've lost my train of thought, but um, <laughs> sorry, it's contagious. Oh no, I'm at the age where I just have to get used to it. <laughs> so, so you, um, so you, so I love that you said you read John Grisham. You don't always, you're not so highbrow that you won't read. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So often when, um, when uh, nowadays, you know, you get so many book recommendations on Facebook and uh, people's blogs and modern books. Oh, we get, you know, the, the these um, modern thrillers, you could call them. And yet every time I read one of those, I think, oh, well, this one will surely be good. Everybody loves it. They're so not the quality that um, I, I just keep telling myself, please stop wasting your time on these new books. They're never, they never mm -hmm. seem to be the, of the, the depth and the literary quality of some of these older books. Um, of course, Mitford's a new, a newer series, but, and there are some excellent books, but overall, a lot of the modern um, uh, selections that people um, recommend are to me fall short of, of great writing. Oh, yes. And, you know, the, the idea of <clears throat> mentioning John Grisham among all the classics, uh, 
I think it's important for us to realize that not everything has to be reading and annotating Augustine's City of God. Yes. <laughs> you know, that, that's a great and challenging thing to do. Uh, George MacDonald said there's a great deal of difference between the eager man who wants to read a book and the tired man who wants a book to read. Mm. And I think there is a place for both kinds of reading. It's okay to read a murder mystery or a John Grisham or some other kind of light fiction for refreshment and recreation. And as long as we also are challenging ourselves with worthy and classic books and the way they stretch us and looking beyond, so often we read just for plot. And this is one of the things I you know, try to explain to my students and to my own children. The plot is not the only or often even the most important part of the story. Okay, it is with a John Grisham book, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but you look at how the author tells the story, how the author crafts sentences, the, the words he or she uses, and that, that makes a big difference. And that's one of the reasons I like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and so on, because they just have more beauty and more literary quality to them than some of the things where people are cranking out six or seven books a year. Uh, and although I know there are famous noted authors who have worked quickly, I'm just not sure that it's common to crank out things of great value at high speed. Right. Well, especially if it's the same um, outline as the book before. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, I thought, boy, if I could just grab, write one of these outlines down, I could have, I'm, I, th I feel like I could write a book. I just can't come up with a plot. So um, right. I, I feel like, well, if I could just find an outline, I could fill it in. Um, but, um, so that can't be easy. So I, one of the things I, I don't want to get off of here without, and this is kind of a departure, but, um, it is interesting. And I didn't tell you, I was going to say this. You have homeschooled four boys, um, pretty much by yourself. Um, do you have any tips or hints about, um, that? About homeschooling in particular? About or homeschooling boys, or... boys, especially, because I get a lot of questions about boys. Um, and, um, I, I, since you've done that as a mom, um, I don't know if you've had come across any good ideas along the way for dealing with things that are particularly boyish. <laughs> well, you know, boys have a lot of energy. I, after my third or fourth son was born, I came across a sign that defined boy as a noise with dirt on it. <laughs> and, and that's, I was not prepared. I was the girliest little girl. I wore the frilly frocks and I had purses to match every pair of shoes, okay. including a rather infamous orange patent leather ensemble when I was a preschooler <laughs> in Miami. Uh, but, so God, I think, had a sense of humor when he gave me four sons and then added on to that uh, then with their dad left when the youngest one was, was six months old. And so it has been a learn-as-I-go kind of thing. Um, letting go of some of my expectations mm -hmm. for quiet and even some of my expectations for order. But I think our kids rise to our expectations and in boys and girls are very different, but in many ways they need the same thing. They need, they need our love. They need that just snuggling up on the couch with a good book time. They need to learn responsibility. One of the things that I had to do as a single mom was to call in allies because I knew I couldn't do it on my own. Uh, joining a co-op was one of the ways that I did that and uh, having them involved in some extracurricular activities where they learned, you know, guy skills. And so it's just beautiful to see how God rewards our labors, however inadequate or overwhelming they may seem at the time. My boys are now... Uh, my oldest is 25 and recently married. Uh, my second son, who was in here helping me set up the computer for the podcast, is 22 and taking a gap year before he finishes uh, his last year of college. My third son is, let me think, about to turn 21 and is in college studying uh, to be a family nurse practitioner. And my youngest is about to turn 17. And they are such fine young men. And I feel like really it's just ultimately God's blessing. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's so much training that I think is involved. One of the things I had done out of necessity 
was just turn over the running of our household to my boys. I have worked at home as a book editor for almost 30 years, but it became my full-time income when my husband left. And so the boys had to become more independent as learners, and they had to take over the house. And eventually, it depends on ages and ability, of course, but I think too often we underestimate what our kids can do. Mm, Good point. And so by the time they were in high school, they were taking care of most of the cooking, all of the cleaning, all of putting away the groceries, and eventually most of the grocery shopping, taking care of our pets, taking care of the yard, taking care of all their own laundry, plus the towels, uh, and just all of these things. I expect to have very grateful daughters-in-law someday, (laughs) because boys need those skills too. Yes, yes. And um, they really rise to our expectations. And there have been times, you know, the tussles between brothers and just the smells and the noises and the otherwise inexplicable behavior. One thing I often tell to to new moms of baby boys is that the all-purpose explanation for parenting boys, uh, for anything for which there is no explanation, the answer is it's the Y chromosome. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are no explanations. And you, can, you, you can't figure out how what's going to happen. Right, right. So, um, well, th- that's excellent. Now, I'm trying to imagine what your library looks like at your house. Um, do you have a room dedicated to your library, or, or are there bookshelves everywhere? There is not enough space in one room for the books. Um, so I, I do dream of having a wood-paneled library with floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall bookcases and a flickering fire and, you know, plush rugs and all this. But the reality is I have bookcases in every room except the bathroom, and that's only because the moisture would damage them. Okay. When we moved a year ago from Mississippi to Tennessee, we moved 160 cartons of books. Wow. I have 52 bookcases. Um, a couple of them are small. Most of them are the, you know, five-shelf cheapo kind from the office supply store. I have still not finished unpacking because, and I kind of have to confess here, I keep on buying more books. <laughs> <laughs> because there's all these great secondhand bookshops around the greater oh, Nashville yes, area. you're in that great area for books. So, yes. You know, people... People used to come into my house every time a, a workman, an electrician or AC repairman or whatever would come in our house in Mississippi. And the first thing you see when you come in the front door was all these bookcases. They'd say, wow, lady, you sure have a lot of books. And then they'd go into the next room and the next room. <laughs> but I, I really believe in the value of building a home library, not not just for people who are you know, totally obsessive like I am, but there's something about just the physical presence of books. And I know not everybody has room for 52 bookcases. Of course, you can get uh, – I've used bookcases as room dividers uh, in rooms that boys had to share, build a wall down the middle. Ah. I've got two low bookcases backing up to my desk in my office making a little island, and I use the top of those bookcases as a standing desk. So get creative. Think beyond just backed up to the wall. Mm-hmm. But in my view, the purpose of walls is to hold the house up and to provide a backdrop for bookcases. <laughs> but, you know, the value of just having books in your home and, and it shows a priority that you place on them. It's handy when you want to say, your kid ask a question. How, how does such and such happen? Well, yeah, you can Google it, but it's so much better to say, let's go look it up. And you've got a book on colonial crafts on your shelf to answer the question of how are candles made. Mm. Uh, and there's just something real and tangible and almost sensual about a print book and just the resource. And sometimes technology goes down. Uh, your, your Kindle can be out of battery or there can be a storm or things can be, you know, there was a, a horrific story years ago where Amazon remotely deleted George Orwell's books of all books, 1984 mm. and Animal Farm, from everybody's Kindle in the middle of the night and gave them a credit in their account. And it wasn't some kind of funky censorship. It was about... Uh, 
apparently the publisher did not have permission to uh, publish a digital version, but how ironic for that to be Orwell. And there were students who lost their highlights and the notes they had taken and so on. Well, I realized that my home library of paper books is vulnerable to flood and fire and so on. And yet, apart from natural disaster, nobody can take my books away from me without a gun. So, And there's just something permanent about them. I have books that were inscribed by the authors. I have books that were inscribed by somebody who gave them to me. I have a few books that belong to my grandmother, uh, books that belong to my mom, who's passed away a few years ago. And so there's also sentimental value to specific copies of certain books and something of beauty too. When my when my third son was 13 years old, um, he just commented, he's the one who, who thinks like an artist. He said, I like the way the words look on the page, the mm-hmm. normal ink print. So he was even as a 13 year old boy able to see the beauty of the book as an artifact, as an art object. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, Can you give tell your I'm passionate about that? Yes. Yes, and I I I love that. Um do you um do you do you give gifts then as books or are your Christmases and birthday gifts centered around books? Oh yes. Always there's always books. There's always going to be something else too, but every birthday, every Christmas there will be books. And I don't want to uh, give a false impression. Not all of my kids love books all of the time. Right, right. Uh, some of them love to read now. Some of them avoid it. And they all go through seasons. But it's that expectation. It's that culture of reading in your family. And it does uh, bear fruit over time. Just a week ago, my 25-year-old newlywed son asked me for a book recommendation because he wanted to start reading more again. And yeah, so I, I was noticed that with my kids in modern living, it really squeezes out. You have to be very intentional to yes. read. And, um, I, but I've seen them, it's kind of like the Bible verse, raise up a child in the way they should go and they will return to it. But I see them kind of waking up thinking, boy, you know, I haven't read, I need to read. And, um, that's been kind of a, a, a pleasure. And I'd also think there's late bloomers. I think yes. there's people who come to reading, they wake up and then they've had this culture of reading. They've kind of been swimming in the water, but haven't been partaking. And then one day magically they wake up and they say, Oh, look, I can swim in this, this too. Yes. Uh, so, um, I mean, that's what I've seen from my perspective that, but not all of our children, it, this isn't like, oh, here's how you plug in a great reader. I mean, of course you want to be reading and of course they're learning that way, but we can't always just plug in, um, a formula and and spit out a reader. <laughs> right. Right. I, I wish we could. Yeah. Heaven knows <laughs> if I could have done that, I certainly would have, but it's, it's parenting, homeschooling, just life is a marathon, not a sprint. That's one of the things I talk a lot about in my book, Flourish. We can't always live at a breakneck speed. We can't educate our children as if it's a sprint when it's really a marathon. We can't go about our days if everything is urgent, urgent, urgent. Mm. And uh, we have to find a pace we can maintain for the long haul. And I think that applies to our expectations for child rearing as well. There's no formula for raising godly children. There's no formula for raising kids who love to read. There are guidelines and principles, and certainly scripture tells us a lot about parenting and, and child rearing and so on. But there, there are no guaranteed results, and sometimes it takes um, a long time before we see the fruit of our labor. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... We may not even live long enough to see the fruit of our labor, but it will be there over time. And so I want to offer encouragement to any parents who are in a hard place, whether you're parenting as you know, homeschooling as a single parent or you just can't get your kids to engage with what they're reading or you're struggling to get them to pick up after themselves. And the idea of having them do their own laundry just sounds like a pipe dream. Hang in there. Be diligent, have realistic expectations for yourself and for them, and give everybody a lot of grace. Mm. You know, there's a balance between high expectations and good training versus grace and the reality of daily life. 
Oh, those are good words. <laughs> and I think they're the kind of words we just have to keep hearing over and over and over again. Yes. Um, yes. Especially when we get, you know, we're not, we, we just going along and then boom, something hard comes up and, we're, and then we're kind of lost for a while. We don't know how to pick ourselves up and go on or, or if this was, is normal, if this is part of, um, and, 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 you know, it's good to hear, it's good to hear moms who have gone before say that it's okay. <laughs> it, yeah. God is in control. Now, I want to talk about, um, now you teach 7th and 8th grades right now. Right um, now. And I did previously teach ninth through 12th grade in our homeschool co-op for about 8 or 9 years. Okay. So, so you, um, so you, I, one of the things you had written down that you like to talk about, and I really thought this would be something that people would be resonate with, is it why safe books are not the only kind of good books. That's a tricky question, and I would love to hear your opinion about that. Yes, it is. I'm always a little nervous when I talk about this, <laughs> and so I have to provide a disclaimer. It totally depends on the age of your children. Yes. But there it's... is an idea out there that we we just need to find good, safe, clean books to keep our kids from being exposed to bad things. Well, yes, we want to avoid exposing our kids to bad things. But safe can be very vanilla. If you take safe to mean there's nothing negative, there's no conflict, there's no sin, you couldn't even read Peter Rabbit with your kids because he's a disobedient bunny. He disobeys right. his mother. But there are consequences. And so just looking for something that's clean, merely the absence of cuss words and explicit immorality is not enough to say that a book is good. Um, it's You have to be age appropriate. Safe is more important for younger children. Right. But just like as, as our children get older and as they become more mature, we give them more freedom and more responsibility. And this applies to books too. There's just a lot about discernment. You know, when kids are young, literature, a lot of reading is about positive examples that they should emulate. Right. But as, as they get older, they can learn from negative examples to avoid. I mean, the Bible is full of negative examples, and you can use books to teach discernment. Mm -hmm. Because all great literature involves conflict or, or sin. If there's no conflict, there's no plot, there's no story. And especially when we look at studying the great books of antiquity, there's violence and immorality, but the terrible consequences of sin are evident right the really uh the really bad stuff is where sin is is celebrated and there's no consequence but one important distinction for me in choosing books that are appropriate um to recommend and it's oh it's always with fear and trembling when i recommend books to anyone especially for kids because everybody's standards standards are different but an important distinction for me is is evil behavior depicted explicitly or is it merely suggested? Mm, For example, okay. I love F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Great Gatsby. In fact, I had the privilege of working on it when I was in graduate school. I had I got to actually help edit it for Cambridge University Press. Oh, so my. So I like to say I cut my editorial teeth <laughs> so on The Great Gatsby. that's why you're such a good editor. You just jumped <laughs> right into the great literature. Yes, yes, started with Gatsby. But Gatsby, you know, I've had some people say, well, I don't want my children reading that book. There's adultery in it. Well, yes, there, there's more than one adulterous relationship in there, but there's no explicit description. In fact, you can't even find anything to definitively state that Daisy and Gatsby had a physical relationship. Well, yep, they, sure, they probably did, but there's no description of that. So we, we know that there's an inappropriate relationship going on, but we're not brought inside the bedroom with explicit detail. Mm. I think that's a really big difference. There are books that take you just like like movies you know that cut away versus um you know showing everything right <laughs> this right. reminds me of everything another thing about jan karen jan, i heard jan speaking once and she said um somebody said that um they appreciated that there was no sex in the Mitford books, and she said, there most certainly is sex in the Mitford books and so <laughs> she quoted a passage from one of them and she said Cynthia turned to Father Tim and smiled at him in the dark. Uh -oh. So there, <laughs> you know, like I 
it was and you could have just heard it in her genteel southern lady accent but with all the force she could muster so we know there are relationships going on i'm straying right. from the topic a little bit but i couldn't help remembering that so there are you know there is evil celebrated or does evil have terrible consequences in gatsby Things don't turn out well for anybody. Right. There's some darkness and some immorality there, but it's not explicit. And the results of those things are very, there's a lot of moral lessons in Gatsby. And then there's the question of, is it okay to read non-Christian authors? One of my favorite um, books about books, oh shoot, one of Leland Riken's books, The Realms of Gold, Classics and Christian Perspective, and there's another one that I cannot think of the name of right now. I'm going to try walking over to my shelf and hope it doesn't break the phone connection. Hang on a second here. Okay, I'll I'll Google his name on Amazon. This is too important. Um, Oh shoot, maybe it is Realms of Gold. But the idea that not everything that's in a work of literature is offered for our approval, there's positive examples to emulate and negative examples to avoid. And so I think it's important to to realize and to grapple, you know, with classics, there's complicated ideas, there's complicated moral issues. And if we discuss them with our kids, um, we, we teach them how to be discerning. Well, one thing I like I'm I... seeing and, and, and along this line, and it's a, it's a, been a bit of a disturbing trend, um, as culture is changing quickly and there's Facebook, uh, I noticed like um, on Ambleside Online, they have a book list that um, they, they recommend, you know, they have years where they have books. It's I'm not saying it's a book list. I'm just saying they have a they have some lists of books. I, I once said it was a book list and got in trouble. But, um, <laughs> Lynn will get you. In the book list that they have, they 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 will have a book listed and, and people and, and many of them are very old books. And so mm-hmm. the, in the book, things will have happen that we nowadays with our sensibilities we don't like we we don't like mm. to call indians certain words you know or we don't okay. like we don't like to so a lot of people will not spank their children and so if a book mentions any of these things that were mm. that we have grown our sensibilities have changed then people are are, are reject the book oh my goodness i'm not going to read that book it's racist or it's uh um when in fact yes that is in possibly true um and yet i hesitate to have people throwing these books out um, because they disagree with something that's happening in the book um do you have any advice on that well that's an angle i hadn't really thought about but that whole idea of throwing something out because you disagree with it if you only read stuff you agree with you're never going to grow and it's a little bit different reading for yourself than reading with your kids, but use that. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, you mentioned earlier, it's such a beautiful, powerful book. I love that book. And yet it has racial ugliness in it. And there are some people who won't read it because they think the book itself is racist. And I'm thinking, did they read the same yeah, book I read? Yeah. It's a critique, a powerful critique of racism. But there's some uncomfortable things in it. And so what we can do, and, you know, from somebody else's perspective, they might not want to read it. But with any example, if there's a book, there's things we disagree with, whether it's spanking kids or racial issues or parenting or just anything else, um, it's, it's fodder for discussion. If you're reading a book aloud with your kids and it's got something that you disagree with and maybe you didn't know it was there, say, well, you know, we don't use that word. Right. And and here's why we don't use that word. It's very hurtful. And here's what we can say instead. And so the people in this book, you know, this is how they handled it. But we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. Um, when, when you're reading uh, classic literature, you know, you're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a very foreign world from our time, but there are things we can learn from it. But we have to take into account the culture and the context, and we have to so, respect so that that was a different culture, and we can learn yes. about, we can learn something from it. We we might not emulate it, but we can at least right. say we can't pretend that they had our values in their time either. Right. You know, I 
I just think that, well, you know, the idea of not having same values in different times. When we were going through uh, antiquity in my seventh and eighth grade class last year, we had to keep talking about, you know, what's a hero to us, what is a hero biblically, and what did these people think at during think was a hero during the time of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and that helped us understand some of what was otherwise really hard to wrap our minds around. But I think sometimes some readers and some parents have an attitude of, I just want the the safe books, the books I agree with, so that there's nothing I have to worry about explaining to my kids or that I might risk being exposed to. And I think we're shortchanging ourselves. Yes, there are some things. I mean, there are certain books that nobody should ever read. Right. And right. I'm not going to name any titles sure. because I don't want to give them the airtime. But you know what they are. Exactly. There are certain books that are so immoral that nobody should be exposed to them ever for any reason. And we so we should have standards, right? Oh, yes. We, I'm not saying to throw standards out the window. Um, I like the classification that Oliver Van DeMille used in a Thomas Jefferson education. He categorized books as bent, which portray mm. evil as good and good as evil, and things like porn and uh, really explicit horror would be mm. like that. And those bent books that show evil as good need to be avoided. Then there are broken books where evil is shown as evil and good is shown as good, but evil wins. And an example of that would be 1984. 1984 is an incredibly important book. It's got some dark things in it. And evil wins. Spoiler. Sorry. But, uh, you know, but there are important lessons there. But we don't want to spend all our time in broken books because they're so dark that the, the impact is just so heavy on us. Then there are what he calls whole books. Good is good and evil is evil. And good wins. Look at Narnia. Look at Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of evil in Lord of the Rings. Yes, yes. Sauron and Saruman and all these evil forces. And yet, that's a real struggle between good and evil. That's what the Bible's about, the struggle between good and evil. And how God redeems us out of that struggle. And then uh, Oliver Vandermill's fourth category is healing books. And he says... Either That can be either whole books or broken books, but books that have a profound effect on the reader. Mm. And we should spend most of our time with whole books where good wins, evil is evil, good is good. And yet there is a place for those other books where we really have to grapple with dark realities like 1984. Mm. And so we have to use discernment. That's what it's all about is, is teaching because how can we teach our kids wisdom? And how can we exercise wisdom ourselves if everything that we encounter is something we already agree with? Right, right. It, that you, we really don't grow as people that way either. So, right. Um, well, I we have. I would just love to keep talking as always. I, I, I as this has been very delightful. So I'm going to put you on the spot as we wrap things up here. Can you think of five? Maybe can you just throw out a couple names of uh, of your favorite books you've read over the years? Either uh, how about to your students? What are some of your favorite uh, read alouds that you read to your family or to your students? Oh, favorite read alouds. Uh, remembering with my boys, just some of the highlights would be uh, Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. We loved reading that. Um, Carry on, Mr. Bowditch. Oh, yeah. They got into that book so much. A surprise for me was reading aloud uh, some of the Little House on the Prairie books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. I loved those books when I was growing up. They were so formative to me. And I read them aloud to my boys, and I remembered loving the rag dolls and the nine patch quilts and all the girly stuff. But there's bears and Indians and, you know, yes. wasps and all kinds of boy stuff in there, too. They're, they're surviving out on the hard uh, frontier. Yeah, Paul's so, the ultimate manly man. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so they loved those as well. And my most recent example of a family read aloud, oh my goodness, um, was The Wind in the Willows. Oh. We had never read The Wind in the Willows, really? one of my many failings as a mom. Uh-oh. And it was our last read aloud before my oldest son moved away to his first apartment uh, for college. And we got to the chapter where one of the characters, and I'm going to embarrass myself now by not remembering which one, 
I think it was Mole, but I'm not sure, was leaving home for the first time to explore the wide world. And I wish I had the book in front of me to quote the passage, but it talked about how he was going off on an adventure and it was new and kind of scary, but his home would always be there for him to come back to. I blubbered my way. I was just a sobbing mess of (laughs) jello in a puddle uh, reading that as my son was leaving. It was so appropriate. And then one of my all-time favorite read-alouds is Charlotte's Web, and that too turns me into a quivering puddle of jello at the end. Um, and there's just something about reading aloud with our kids that's just so beautiful. And uh, it's it's that time together. It's um, it, it's just a shared experience. And it's hard to make time for it. I, that's one of the things that I begrudged losing some of my time for uh, as as my kids grew older and also as I had to work, but I just have, can I have time to share one more quote? Oh, absolutely. Feel free. I just happened to have here with me, I pulled out some of my favorite quotes from when I speak about books. Another one from Eudora Welty from One Writer's Beginnings. And that, that book, as you know, is really about the influences that shaped her as a person and as a writer. And her description of her mother reading aloud to me is just so beautiful and I think it's a good encouragement to moms who are struggling to make time for reading aloud or maybe not understanding if it's worth the effort Mm. or those who just need encouragement to carry on what they're already doing. And here's what Eudora Welty writes. I learned from the age of two or three that any room in our house at any time of day was there to read in or to be read to. My mother read to me. She read to me in the big bedroom in the mornings when we were in her rocker together, which ticked in rhythm as we rocked, as though we had a cricket accompanying the story. She'd read to me in the dining room on winter afternoons in front of the coal fire, with our cuckoo clock ending the story with cuckoo, and at night when I'd got in my own bed, I must have given her no peace. Sometimes she read to me in the kitchen while she sat churning, and the churning sobbed along with any story. It was my ambition to have her read to me while I churned. Once she granted my wish, but she read off my story before I brought her butter. She was an expressive reader. When she was reading Puss in Boots, for instance, it was impossible not to know that she distrusted all cats. (laughs) Isn't that a great quote? That is excellent. That is beautiful. Um, That was... um... That was just really good. That's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much, Mary Jo. Uh, Very, very nice talking to you. Delightful, in fact. Um, Thank you. It's always a great delight to talk about books. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today, Cindy. Okay. When everybody can, and we'll we'll put some, uh, we'll put out some notes about the show and and people can find you at eclecticbibliophile.com and flourishathome.com. All right. Thank you very much.